My guest today is Christine Dine. She's a jewelry artist, and she's the author of the Eco Jewelry Handbook. She also taught at Revere Academy and is really the leading expert on grain practices in your jewelry studio. And today we're talking about sustainability in the studio and also sustainability as an artist. So taking care of yourself so that you can make more jewelry um, as long as you want to. So Christine, tell us what sustainability means to you. I'm excited to talk with you about your book and learn more about eco jewelry and sustainable practices. Well, to get started, I'd like to share a quote from the beginning of my book um, that where I pose the question, what is, what is eco jewelry? And um, so the quote from the book says, eco is a term along with the term green that is used loosely in current American culture, particularly when it comes to the marketing and sales of products. For our purposes, we will assume that you're not reading this handbook because you're motivated by marketing hype, but because you have a genuine desire to do the right thing. And the reason that I start off with that quote in the beginning of the book is because um, I have kind of a wandering journey coming to this um, through jewelry because I always um, had a, a interest in the environment and preserving the environment starting as far back as early in high school. And I was voted most likely to save the earth back then. And that's, oh, the, yeah. that's a great title. Yeah, I know. It was a surprise. I, they Thank came you. Out, they came out with the senior yearbook, you know, and there I was with this award in the yearbook. I didn't even know. <laughs> so, that's fantastic. You had some yeah. really thoughtful classmates. Like. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess they're the ones who decided because since they, they had a yearbook committee and everything. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. So, so that, you know, has been really important to me since high school. And I also was really interested in making jewelry ever since before high school even started. So before high school started, I was so excited to start taking jewelry class in high school, which they actually did offer at my high school. I was so lucky. Oh, you're so fortunate. Yeah. I know. <laughs> so I, so they both, you know, both my interests started about the same time and I'd been pursuing them both separately and didn't really think about how they interacted with each other until, um, until going to a snag conference. And one of my first, it was one of my first snag conferences or early on in my career going to snag conferences where ethical metalsmiths gave a presentation about the impacts of gold mining on the earth and, and what was involved in gold mining. And I hadn't even, I had never had any thoughts about where does this material come from when I was making the jewelry. And so that really opened my eyes to the fact that my two interests were kind of at odds with each other. So that started me thinking like, well, what can I do to bring these two things more in alignment with each other? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think that um, that authenticity translates, you know, from both of your interests. That's so cool. Yeah. I went to a snag conference and learned about medical. Um, ethical metalsmiths as well. And yeah, in, in case people haven't been to SNAG before, it's a, a gathering basically of metalsmiths from all over the world. Yeah. And it's a great networking opportunity too, because you meet people, like you said, from all over and everybody has a different perspective. And when you get, when you meet people with the right interest, you can start to form collaborative efforts. And that's how um, I started to get involved with ethical metalsmiths because they were there giving the presentation. And so I, I actually met the people involved and was able to start to work with them. One of the co-founders um, helped me develop the curriculum for a, we called it a green jewelry class at the time. And I taught that at the Revere Academy. 
and um, it, pe- people were really interested, you know, and, and so I want to get back to that quote where I say that, um, you know, I'm, I'm writing this book and assuming that you genuinely have the desire to do the right thing. And I'm the eternal optimist, always, you know, <laughs> wanting the, for other, everything to, for the best. And so I really do think that people or the great majority of people really want to do the right thing but the information isn't available a lot of the time or there's so much information, it's hard to figure out where to start. It's overwhelming at this point. And so I, I thought that writing this book where it was kind of a concise overview of the issues and, and things that are easy to do th- to get started would be a good place for people to feel like it was accessible for them to participate in, in putting their two interests. If they were interested in environmental issues and in, in jewelry making, they could read the book and get started and it would not be overwhelming for them. Right. Well, and your class at Revere was also the first of its kind. Right. Well, yeah, that, and that was, that was really what got, what got it all started, you know, cause it was so much research and collaborating with ethical metalsmiths. They had kind of the mining side of it and I had more of the studio side of it. And we put all that information together to present to the students and yeah, it, people were so grateful, you know, in that class because they didn't, they didn't know they didn't, they were, it was like, I was opening their eyes the way my eyes were opened, you know, with ethical metalsmiths. And so people were learning and then they figured out, well, I'm empowered with this information. I can make changes in my business that are going to affect, you know, people profits in the planet. Just like now it's, right. now it's, now it's everyday you know, nomenclature, but back then it was just kind of getting started. So. Yeah. I think it's really exciting when you see your students, aha moments. And <laughs> for the, you know, I bet there were a lot of those in your class. Yeah. And I, and even more rewarding, I still would get emails, you know, years after the class from students who said, oh yeah, I found this great new supplier. I just wanted to share with you so you can share it with your students. And so can, you know, paying it forward, trying to help other people who are following along their same path, but maybe not quite as far along kind of thing. So it's really, yeah, it's it's nice to pay it forward idea. After teaching the green jewelry class at Revere, the word kind of got out and people were interested in other countries as well. So I was invited to teach the class in um, Australia. So I was, vis- I was visiting Australia. They invited me to teach the class. And I, one, I, one of the students was my teaching assistant there. And so we got to be good friends. And she, then later she got a grant um, from the Australian government to come to the States to do an internship with me to learn more about oh, nice. green joy. Yeah, it was really great. So we worked together and we already knew we worked together well. And so she wanted to know, you know, what, how can she learn? What can, what project can we work on together? So I had just started writing the book. So she helped me do a lot of the research for the um, chapter on the chemicals that I have in there where it talks about less toxic chemicals and, yeah. and, and rates the chemicals so that people can figure out what's going to best suit their needs as well as be the most friendly for their health and their studio. And so she helped me do a lot of that, um, that research, which, you know, it's great to have that, that collaborative effort and, and be able to work internationally on the project. So that was yeah, that whole, brings a whole other appeal I think yeah. to a project is working together with someone who can really dig in and help you out. Yeah. And especially being an Australian, it sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> and she got to get reciprocate and come over here too, which was great. Yeah. So, how cool. Yeah. Looking at those chemicals and talking about greening your studio, are there a few things that you could advise that people could do, you know, soon to make a change? 
Yeah, there's a, a couple of things that are kind of simple solutions um, or substitutions that people can make. Um, one is the the pickle, which is obviously a big one. That's the um, one of the chemicals that we're using. And a lot of people, I think, have may have already made a switch to a citric acid pickle, which is a food grade pickle, um, and that is something that that can be you know an easy substitution working pretty much the same way as you would use for a sodium bisulfate pickle. But the, um, the, it's still, you still want to use the same precautions that you would with a sodium bisulfate pickle, like ventilation, um, avoiding skin contact, that kind of thing. But the, the results of the fumes are going to be less harsh. The irritation is not as great with the skin, that kind of thing. So it's, it's more friendly all overall. The thing to be aware of though, with the pickle, disposal is the issue even though you have a I was more. just going to ask you about that. <laughs> yeah, so the so the so it whether you use no matter what kind of pickle you use really the process of pickling the metal what you're doing is you're cleaning the copper oxides off the surface because when you heat something up it gets black that's the copper oxidizing when you put it in the pickle it cleans it comes out bright it's the copper oxide that's been removed so all of those copper oxide molecules are sitting in the solution and copper is a heavy metal, so we want to avoid getting that in the water supply. Some of the water processing facilities aren't set up to take heavy metals out, um, so we just want to avoid getting it in there in the first place. So rather than pouring that down the drain, the best thing to do is to keep it and dispose of it properly. And I know that a lot of us have small studios. It's hard to have storage space and how do you store chemicals properly are big questions for people. So what I advise people to do is um, to reduce the volume of the pickle. So you heat it up um, with good ventilation, of course, so you don't have much liquid left. So you want to. So you're boiling it and you're. You're boiling it off. Yeah, exactly. And but with good ventilation, so you're not breathing in the fumes, and then let it cool when you have reduced the volume. Um, and then pour it into a acid grade uh, plastic storage container with a well sealing lid. So you want to make sure it's cool. It's not going to melt the container and it's got to be acid grade so it doesn't eat through the plastic. And then you want to make sure that you label it with what is in there, you know, citric acid with copper. And then when you take it into hazardous uh, waste disposal, they'll be able to dispose of it properly. So you can, if you have a container that's where you've reduced the volume of your liquid, then you can, of course, put several, you know, pickle solutions in there you know, that have been um, basically reduced to the volume. So you won't have to keep taking things in to hazardous disposal. And um, it's just safer to store, you know, less, fewer things in the studio if you can. Yeah. So, that makes yeah. sense. You know, when I um, first was learning how to solder, I read a lot about, yes, it's fine to put it down the drain. And it just seems like not a good idea. <laughs> but <laughs> Well, I think it's, it's all just kind of an awareness that's developing. And with jewelry, people have been making jewelry so long. The history goes back. You know, it's very, very far. And so people have learned from other people who've been doing it. And so they just pass on the way that they've been doing it. And people haven't really thought about the consequences further down the road. You know, it's just like, oh, yeah, this is how you do it because this is how we've always done it. But then once you look at the broader picture, you know, it starts to have these other repercussions that perhaps we weren't aware of previously. Yeah, well, and it seems like that's a pretty easy transition to make. 
I mean, yeah. if people, you know, it's not a big deal to change your pickle and change the way you're disposing of it. Yeah. And then I wanted to give people another tip about pickle. It's, I mean, we all use it every day, right? So it's kind of a big um, thing to, to make little changes will make a bigger difference. Um, I like to use a really small pickle pot, like a little mini like potpourri style crock pot rather than the big ones, because yeah. that makes less volume that you have to begin with. So it's less volume, less you have to boil off later, less you're going to have to store when it's, when it's used. And then also making sure that you take care of your pickle along the way. So what that would involve is not, um, putting, so oftentimes we'll have the, um, neutralizing solution right next to the pickle. So we'll neutralize our metals as we take them out. What we want to be sure to do is dip the, whatever we're going to put back into the pickle solution should be clean. It shouldn't have the baking soda on it or else we're neutralizing our pickle and making it weaker. And then we're going to have to add more acid to it to make it strong again. So if we just make sure that everything that goes into the pickle doesn't have baking soda on it, then that's going to make the pickle last longer. So that's one thing you can do to make the pickle last longer. The other thing is that as you use the pickle, it tends to get like the little pieces of charcoal cube and stuff on it. So it looks pretty dirty. Um, You can actually strain it through either a fine mesh strainer, a plastic one, or, um, you know, some kind of like nylon mesh, something like that, and catch all of those particles out. And then it'll look, you know, it'll look more palatable to use it as far as, as far as being clean. And, and another thing that people often, um, think is that as soon as it turns blue, it's, it needs to be changed. Um, but the, the blue indicates the presence of the copper in there, but it's not necessarily unusable. Um, you can, if you're feeling like, oh, it's getting weak, you can actually just add, oftentimes add more acid and that will take care of it. And then you can just make it last a bit longer mm-hmm. so that you're not going through this um, disposal process as often. Exactly. Yeah. So often, t- you know, I, I say people, if they're taking care of their pickle properly, depends on how much jewelry you're making in the volume and that kind of thing. But your average studio jeweler, you know, at home can make their pickle last months, you know, maybe six months, even if they really oh, take really? care of it. Yeah. So it just depends on your, you know, how often you're pickling things. but. But it, but I think thinking of the like longer term use for the pickle is a good, good way to think about it. It's interesting to me that the sustainability practices will even come down to something as simple as making your pickle last longer, regardless of what kind of pickle you're using. Right. You well, know that I, maintaining those um, longevity is better than getting rid of stuff in your studio. And that's that's kind of a basic tenet for environmentalism in general. You know, mm-hmm. we, we, we live in this consumer society where we're used to just getting a new one when it doesn't work anymore. But oftentimes the one we have will function just fine if we do a little maintenance on it. So it's that that a concept can be applied throughout the studio, not just to the pickle. You know, looking yeah, at, it's a look, great point. So just looking into whatever you're using and what, what other disposables you might be going through, you know, are there, that's, that's something I address in the book is just looking at your production process and what are the, what are the items that are consumed, what's disposed of, and is there an alternative? Is there a way of either making it last longer or substituting something else that's, that's either reusable or just does the job without being consumed? Well, I know you take that right down to the materials themselves. I saw some pictures of your jewelry that you use. It looks like parts from computers. 
Right. Yeah. And I started working with um, repurposed and recycled materials when I when I moved to San Francisco. Um, I started to have that kind of industrial aesthetic in my world, you know, in, in the city. Sure. And so I wanted to incorporate that kind of hard aesthetic of the industri- industrial um, look, but I wanted to maintain, before that, I came from, I grew up in Santa Barbara, I went to Humboldt State um, in the Redwoods, and so I wanted to kind of maintain that soft feel of nature, which had really inspired me in the past. And so I, I first started working with um, recycled rubber because I was looking around at what what does what doesn't get used, you know, what gets thrown away and doesn't have a, a purpose for it after its original um, purpose. And and the rubber seemed to add that kind of soft element, even though it was an industrial material. So I first started off working with rubber with precious materials, and then I got the um, opportunity to work with. Uh, circuit boards. And I thought that that was a really great way to educate the public about this, these issues that we've been talking about, particularly the mining issue with gold, because circuit boards themselves actually do contain gold. So, so I um, created, I curated, created a, in a uh, exhibition of a, a variety of different jewelers asked them to make work with circuit boards as well. And we put it all together at the Museum of Craft and Design in San Francisco. And it awesome. used it, yeah, it was great. It was very nice. And we used it as an opportunity to educate the public about the fact that so many tons of, of circuit board material type material is thrown away every year with cell phones and computers and things that end up in the landfill. And it would take, um, I think it's four tons of that material to make one ounce of gold if you reclaimed all of the gold from those versus the statistics that are bounced around about gold mining, you know, where it takes 30 tons of dirt to make one ounce of gold. So it's so it's like really important to dispose of electronics properly so that gold can come back out of it again. So that was Well, it's a really clever parallel too between the wearable gold that we think of and the gold that is powering these tiny machines. Yeah. And the the necklace that, that I saw that you made is really beautiful and very dramatic. And it has kind of crescent-shaped pieces of the circuit board connected together. And honestly, at first, I didn't realize that's what it was, you know, because I guess I was looking at it from a far enough distance that it, it just looked like a piece of metal. Well, thank you. Yes, it was that I, w- I was thrilled with the response in the in the gallery it was kind of similar. People were looking at it and they they would ask me, well, what is that? Is it jade? And they couldn't figure <laughs> out what it was, you know, and, and the pieces are quite beautiful and they have such intricate patterns on them. And those crescent shapes are actually the shape that came out of some electronic device. I didn't. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't actually sh- create those shapes myself. I just took wow. the shapes and assembled them. I had to drill some holes and you know to get them to arrange in the proper design. But it was you know that's that's what's so I think amazing to me about reusing materials and and repurposing them is you can take something that was intended for something completely different and create something that's just amazing in a different way. <laughs> yeah, it's a launch pad for whatever you want to make. Yeah. You know, in talking about sustainability and um, eco-consciousness, I think we also have to think about our own sustainability as jewelers and jewelry makers, bench workers, and how we can um, maintain our own 
bodies, you know, long enough to make all the jewelry that we want to make. And I know you're a personal trainer, so I wanted to ask you, are there some stretches that you can suggest to us if we're having a long day at the bench or in our studios that you would recommend that we do? Yeah, I have. Of course, I always have stretches to recommend to people since I'm a personal trainer. <laughs> um, and I there's I think that the, the important thing to think about stretches, I'll be happy to share some with you. But the important thing to, is that people do it in, like you're talking about maintaining the bodies for longevity. It's important to make a commitment to yourself and incorporate them into the routine. Because doing, right. doing a stretch here and there is better than not doing it at all. But if you can get get it to where you have a regular practice of doing it, you're going to prevent the pain rather than trying to relieve the pain after it's already developed. So I think it's really important to just try and figure out a way to get these stretches incorporated in. Um, so that, that being said, I was hoping that I obviously ever we're talking, you're not, <laughs> you're not watching me do the, the stretches. So that's usually people are, I'm with them in person or and now online showing them how to do the stretches. So I'm hoping that you'll do them with me over the audio. And then, and then if you have any questions, you can let me know and we can walk you through it a little bit. That sounds detail. good. I think it's a great idea. Okay, good. So, so I like to start with the larger muscle groups. And since we're, since we're sitting a lot as jewelers, I recommend that people stand up when they're doing the stretches, just because it's like a good way to take a break and change positions. So changing positions throughout the day, I think is really important um, to avoid repetitive stress type injuries. So if people, if they're normally sitting, I recommend they stand up to stretch. And then starting with some simple shoulder rolls is really important. And if you think about how you distribute the weight into the feet, feet hips distance apart to start with, and then a little bit of slight abdominal engagement, so pulling the belly button into the spine, just so that helps get the pelvis in the right position to start with. And then as you breathe, you're going to want to inhale, lift the shoulders up towards your ears. And then as you exhale, squeeze the shoulder blades together and pull the shoulders down away from your ears. And as you, oh, I feel better already. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> so as you're doing that, pay attention to those muscles in between the shoulder blades and right below the shoulder blades. And those are the muscles we want to start to activate because those are the muscles. So as I'm talking, just keep rolling the shoulders. Those are the muscles that start to get a little bit weak as we're sitting in the chair and bending forward over the work. So if we can start to activate those muscles, then they're going to start to hold us in the right position while we're sitting. So that's, that's an important, those are important muscles. So then let's reverse the circle and go the other way. So keep breathing. We're going to inhale and pull the shoulder blades back first and then up and around to the front. Those muscles are still working, but it's a it's opposite direction. Great. All right. And so then once we've got those, those shoulders opened up a little bit, then we can add even a bigger movement. So I'm going to have you put your hands on your shoulder or hands on your shoulders. The elbows are going to be bent and then you're going to start to make circles with the elbows. So backward circles with the elbows and you can, you can move the hands off the shoulders if it feels more comfortable, but just to keep the elbows bent, we've still got the abdominals engaged slightly just to keep the pelvis in the right position. And as you pull the elbows behind you, see if you can broaden across the front of the chest. So you're really opening up the muscles in the front of the chest. Those tends to get oh, tight. 
you don't realize how tight you are until you do something like this. Yeah. So what we're doing, so we're, what we're doing is activating the muscles on the back side of the body and opening the muscles on the front side of the body, because usually when we're sitting, it's the exact opposite that's happening. So we just are trying to counteract what's happening at the bench all day long. Right. And when you were talking about repetitive patterns, so maybe when you put something in the pickle, you do the stretch. Or when you answer the phone, you do the stretch. That's you know? brilliant. Exactly. Tying Just to, it to a regular activity, I think, helps you remember. That's exactly, that's a brilliant suggestion. I have other people who tell me that, like clients, they're not jewelers, but they tell me, oh, I do this when I'm brushing my teeth. Or, you know, so, right. So it's the same idea, exactly. Just when you're, if you have to wait for something in the pickle, you may as well do some stretching while you're at it. Yeah. And maybe standing up to put the thing in the pickle would be a good way to change positions also. Definitely. So let's see. So from there, those are both dynamic stretches, meaning that you're moving while you're doing the stretch. Um, So then moving to the arm. So going down the arms, we'll move to the wrists because we're always using our hands. So you can have the hands just gently down by the sides, palms facing the body and make a fist with the hands. And then we'll start to make circles with the wrists. And when you're doing this type of range of motion stretch, you want to make the circle as big as you can. So you're feeling a stretch going in each direction as you move the arms around. And then remember to keep breathing as you're doing it. We just did the shoulder circle. So try to exhale and relax the shoulders down away from your ears as you exhale. And then we'll turn the hands around in the opposite direction. So the wrists circles opposite direction. Okay. Good. And then for a stretch on the wrist, um, on the underneath and top side of the forearm, I'm going to have you put your arm out like you're making a stop sign with a straight arm for someone. So your palm is flat up against the, so it's facing away from you. Fingers spread apart. Um, the fingers are going to be together Together? actually on this one. Yeah. And then you'll take your other hand and your palm's going to face you and the long part of your hand's going to be parallel to the floor. And then you'll catch all of your fingers, including your thumb, with the palm of that hand and then pull those fingers back towards you. So you're stretching the wrist out, the underneath side of your forearm and the wrist. Okay, so your fingers are bent back toward your own... Towards your own forearm. Toward your own... Yeah. And so this this is a really good stretch to help prevent carpal tunnel. And of course, you want to keep breathing while you're doing the stretches. Breathing is a crucial part of stretching. As you exhale, that's the relaxation phase of the breath. So if you think about releasing any tight feelings in the muscles as you exhale, and as you inhale, imagine the muscles expanding and lengthening. And then we can reverse the position of the wrist and we'll we'll flip the palm the other way. So the fingertips are going to be pointing down towards the floor and the palm is facing you. And you can grab the back of the hand with the opposite hand as well and pull those, pull the uh, back of the hand towards you. So this time the palm of your hand that's not stretching will be on the back of the hand that is stretching. That that's good too. Yeah. I think you're kind of pulling your fingers toward the floor. Right? Yeah. So the, yeah, the fingers okay. are pointing towards the floor. Exactly. Yeah. And so you'd want to do that on both sides. Of course, most people are going to be a little tighter on the side that they're is their dominant hand. So if you do feel particularly tight on any of these stretches on one side more than the other, what I recommend you do is start on the side that feels tight, do the other side, and then go back to the side that was tighter and do it a second time. And that generally gets easier the second time around. That's a good idea. And also just be gentle with yourself. There's no need to go crazy with this. Exactly. 
good to add into your practice. And consistency is more important than going for a home run the first time. You know, you want to just start slow and keep the regular practice of stretching in your routine rather than going too far the first time you might get sore and then you're going to be discouraged. So you don't want to, don't want to do anything to prevent yourself from doing it again. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Well, I love the idea of bringing it into your studio, you know, especially for people who are doing yoga or any kind of stretching outside the studio. Why not just continue in through your day? Yeah. And it and it's energizing too. You'll feel like with these stretches for the wrist, you'll feel, okay, now I can feel like there's more sensation in my hands. You'll have more dexterity for working throughout the day. So it's going to be beneficial in the work. Just those few seconds that you take to stretch. So with static stretches, I recommend holding it about 30 seconds. And the way that you can figure that out is if you want to be really precise, you could time yourself and, and with the breath and breathe in and out, count your number of breaths for 30 seconds, and then maintain that that deep breathing while you're doing the stretches and just count the breath rather than timing yourself each time after that. I usually say between, it's usually between five and 10 breaths, depends on how slowly people breathe. And that's a good idea too. Yeah. And then one other area that's really important, I think, to stretch is the, is the neck. Because we're oftentimes, oftentimes people will have a forward head position. So this is something that's just to be conscious of when you're sitting at the bench, you know, especially with such small things that we're looking at as jewelry, we'll try to get closer to it by putting our head closer to the object. But really ergonomically, it's much better to add magnification to bring the object closer and to set yourself up ergonomically so your face is actually closer to the piece so you don't have to bend over to get closer to it. Um, The head is designed to be directly on top of the spine. So the neck is part of the spine and your ear, if you look at yourself from the side, should be directly over your shoulders. And oftentimes people will be an inch, two inches forward of that position and it starts to be like a 45 degree angle with their neck if you start to look at people from the side. And when that happens, your head, if it's straight over your neck, it doesn't weigh anything because the bones are supporting it. The muscles don't have to do any work. But if you start to tip your head forward, like say to that 45 degree angle position, the head in this essence weighs about 20 pounds. And you're going to have to, it weighs 10 pounds normally, but it's going to weigh the equivalent of 20 pounds if you're bent forward. And those muscles in the back of your neck have to do the extra work to hold it in position. So that's why we all get, all get that tension in the back of the neck. So keeping the- yeah, I think it helps to think about your head as a bowling ball. Yes, and what does. you know, put put as much stuff underneath it as you can. You know, yeah. When exactly. you're leaning forward like that, oh, it's so stressful. Yeah, it's really it, the muscles on the front start to get weak, and the muscles in the back start to get tight. So we want to shift it back. So if you can think about using those muscles in the front of your neck to help push the head back, like you're talking about, get as much underneath your bowling ball head as you can. So, so then to stretch out the muscles in the back of the neck, let's, let's try that together. And mm-hmm. we'll do, we'll start off with a, a dynamic stretch, meaning we're going to move through the stretch and then we'll hold it at the end for a static stretch. So st- again, I think standing up is, is best for this one. You can also do it sitting down. So we'll still have the feet, hips distance apart. The abs are slightly engaged and you'll use your hands clasped behind you. So you'll interlace the fingers behind your back and the okay. arms are going to be straight. And then as you in, inhale, start to think about broadening across the front of the shoulders and squeezing those shoulder blades together again. So now we're incorporating some of those concepts from the previous stretches to broaden across the front of the chest. And then as you exhale, you're going to drop your chin towards your chest, starting to stretch the back of the neck. And then as you inhale, roll your uh, 
left ear over to your left shoulder to tilt the head to the left. And let's nice. Yeah, so we've got a stretch on the right side of the neck with this and the top of the right shoulder. And then we'll breathe here, inhaling, and then exhale. Roll your chin all the way around close to your chest, all the way over to the other side. So your right ear is coming close to your right shoulder. And then we're just going to move back and forth like that a couple of times. So going through the full range of motion with your breath, in exhaling and inhaling as you come around. It's like a half circle. So you're not looking up towards the ceiling. You're just going ear to the shoulder, one side, chin down to the chest, and then ear over to the shoulder on the other side. And then for the last round, I want you to just pay attention to where it feels the tightest. There'll be a little point in that rotation where it feels tightest. So I'm going to have you hold it there and then work on your breathing. So you'll hold with the stretch and you'll start to feel a stretch in the back of the neck or perhaps the top of the shoulder breathing in wherever it feels tight and then as you exhale you're going to let your shoulder drop down towards the floor and the head's going to drop towards the floor in the opposite direction and you can visualize those muscle fibers in the neck and the shoulder lengthening as you inhale and relaxing as you exhale and holding it for a couple more breaths that'll be our static stretch and then we can roll on an exhale over to the other side and find the other side of the neck where it feels tight. And it might not be the same place. You might have tension in one spot on one side. It might be a slightly different angle that you'll need to hold to stretch on the other side. And working with the breath again. So you're, as you inhale, you can create more space in the front of the chest also, still squeezing the shoulder blades together behind the back. And then releasing the shoulder and the head in opposite directions couple of long breaths. And then to come out of it, we'll inhale, take a nice long breath, creating space, and then exhaling, chin comes rolling around to the center of the chest. You can unclasp your hands and use your one of your hands on the top of your forehead to help push your head up so you don't strain the muscles in order to lift the head. Ah, oh, <laughs> feels good. It's, I forget sometimes what, um, you know, what a powerful thing it can be just to take a few minutes for yourself to stretch yeah and it's incredible it, and it you can see it didn't take that long we did both sides 30 seconds on each side that's a minute with a little dynamic stretching is another minute maybe so yeah yeah so every time you reach for your saw take a little <laughs> minute do the stretch yeah like it. yeah you've got the idea <laughs> yeah let's do this well, Christine, this is fascinating, and I'm so glad that you're here to tell us about um, these stretches and just talk about sustainability. I think it's a really important topic in jewelry making that we don't often spend a lot of time um, talking about. I know that a lot of people spend a lot of time thinking about it, you know. Um, one thing that I ask people at the end of each episode is, can you share with us your favorite gemstone or stones? My favorite gemstone? Ooh. Hmm. There's so many. Or maybe it's a favorite piece of jewelry. Um, hmm. Well, you know, I do what I what I really like to to use as gemstones, as we talked about earlier, are are repurposed items where you can't really tell what it is, but it's beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. And so I did do a series of um of pieces that were antique buttons that I set as gemstones and that was really that's fun yeah it was really fun and what I like what I like about that is that then it's it sparks a conversation because people are they say oh what kind of gemstone is that and then you get to explain well actually it's a repurposed item and I wanted to give it a second life 
and adds, you know, add additional uh, beauty to it. It's really showcase its beauty as well. And so it just gets people thinking, I think. So I like to, to use that as a, as a conversation starter to get people thinking about maybe what they can do to reuse things in their lives as well. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And it's always a it's always good to have jewelry as a conversation starter, right? So Yeah, and that's what I also tell my students in the classes is that if they share with their customers about the practices that they're doing, it can start the conversation, you know, and then and if they give them specifics about why they made a choice of a certain material, you know, if they had a more sustainably sourced um stone gemstone and and who it was that mined it and how it was cut and how that benefited the lives of the people who were doing the work to provide this this, these beautiful gemstones that can empower the customers to feel like they have really made the right choice as far as supporting you as a jeweler and supporting those other people along your supply chain that are helping to create the beautiful jewelry Um, and then not only do they feel good about it but then they like to share that story with others and and that not only promotes the idea of, of sustainability in re- in sourcing materials for jewelry making but it also promotes the individual jeweler because the people who are learning about this specific piece that they've likely commented on how beautiful it is they learn that, that it has an underlying beautiful story behind it as well so then they're more likely to want to be part of that story yeah stories are very powerful i totally agree Well, thank you for sharing yours with us today, Christine. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It was fun. I enjoyed speaking with you. Me too. Thanks for listening. To see pictures, please check out our show notes, interweave.com slash jewelry dash artist dash podcast. Jewelry Artist is hosted and produced by me, Katie Hacker. We had help from Tamara Hahnemann and Merle White, a special thanks to the team at Lapidary Journal Jewelry Artist Magazine. Jewelry Artist is an interweave podcast and produced by Golden Peak Media. Our podcast producer is Matthew Talisfor. Tammy Jones is our web editor and Jesse Rodriguez does our marketing. Our executive producer of podcasts is Jared Mayer.